Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And I want to catch up on a whole bunch of things here. And then we'll you know, be, also be taking your phone calls. We're, we've kind of gone into anything goes coronavirus. <laughs> it's, uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm broadcasting from home. Louise and I are sheltering in place. We've been doing so for a couple of weeks now. Uh, you know, it's been, I think, uh, maybe a month, month and a half. I've been suggesting that you might want to think about rearranging your life to the extent that you can. I realize many people, in fact, probably most people can't. And this is, very, this is a big challenge for our country. And, and a large part of that challenge is the absolute and utter failure of this administration to allow us to test for this virus you know, back in January, February, or you know, up, really up until this week. And so we're just now starting to discover how bad the situation is in the United States, and, and it's going to be a mess. But that said, there are a lot of things that we can do. So, for example, you know, I needed to get a haircut, and yesterday, for the first, literally for the first time in her life, Louise cut somebody's hair, mine. So, I, you know, this is cool. I mean, we're learning how to live together and to live, you know, cautiously, quietly in our times. I did want to mention, by the way, I just got an email from Bernie Sanders' campaign. Dear friends, no sugarcoating, at last didn't go the way we wanted. And while our campaign has won the battles of ideas, the battle of ideas, we're losing the battle over electability to Joe Biden. So he says there, Bernie and Jane are going to go back to Vermont after today's congressional business, holding conversations with supporters to get input and assess our path forward. So that's that. There were three states that held elections, and each one, uh, Joe Biden won big. There was a great piece that was posted over on DU earlier, and I thought, you know, I wanted to share this with you. It really kind of highlights how we need to be thinking of this. And I'll just read it. Many years ago, a student asked the anthropologist Margaret Mead what she considered to be the first true sign of civilization in a culture. And the student was expecting Margaret Mead, the great anthropologist, to be talking about pots and, and uh, you know, hooks or clay pots or whetstones or whatever. But instead, Mead said the first sign of civilization in an ancient culture was a thigh bone, a femur, thigh bone, that had healed from a break. She said, you know, in the animal kingdom, if you break your leg, you die, period, full stop. Uh, you can't run from danger. You can't get to the river to drink water. You can't hunt for food and injured animals or humans become fresh meat for predators. But she said a broken femur that is healed is evidence that someone cared for the injured, treated the wound, took the person to safety, you know, fed them, took care of them, and cared for them until they recovered. Helping someone through difficulty is where civilization begins. 
said Margaret Mead. And I think that is just so very, very true. So, you know, that said, we also have to acknowledge exactly where we are right now. On this program last week, I said words to the effect of get ready for unemployment levels that are going to be at or worse than the Republican Great Depression. And get ready for stock market failure that could be worse than the Republican Great Depression. And plan for the worst and hope and work for the best. That's become my motto. Plan for the worst and hope and work for the best. And, you know, a couple people sent me or tweeted at me saying, you know, hey, you're spreading fear. You know, during the first two years of the Republican Great Depression, unemployment hit 20%. That's bad, right? One in five people out of work. And by 1933, it was up to 30, over 35%, I believe. You know, Franklin Roosevelt said a third of Americans were not working. Back then, we didn't measure these things as accurately as we do now. But Steve Mnuchin, the, you know, the former foreclosure king in California, who threw thousands and thousands of people out of their homes with robo-signed uh, documents illegally, he is now our Treasury Secretary. And on Monday, he said, we could see 20% unemployment. Frankly, I think we're going to see that within a matter of weeks because we are looking at a crisis of, frankly, Republican Great Depression. And yes, that's what they called it right up until the 1950s. They called it the Republican Great Depression. It wasn't until Republican Dwight Eisenhower became president that people stopped referring to it as the Republican Great Depression and just called it the Great Depression. And what we're seeing right now are, you know, in my opinion, because we're seeing Great Depression levels of collapse we're going to need Great Depression levels of stimulus. So what was that? Well, when the Great Depression started, our national debt was pretty much non-existent. The Great Depression ended right after World War II. World War II was the giant government program that finally got us completely out of the Great Depression. Franklin Roosevelt's programs got unemployment from 35% down to around 10%. And then it went back up to around 12%, as I recall. I'm doing this from memory. I'm in 37 when he dialed back, and then he went full bore again, and unemployment started going back down again. But it went to virtually nothing during World War II because everybody was working. They were either in the Army fighting or they were working. So if we're looking at that level of problem, if we're looking at a Great Depression-level potential for unemployment and loss of wealth, basically, you know, collapse of the stock market, then... We need to be talking Great Depression levels of stimulus. One trillion dollars is nothing. That's like trying to stop an elephant with a 22 or a pea shooter. I mean, it's just a terrible metaphor. We all love elephants, but you understand what I'm saying. Instead of talking about, uh, you know, giving every American $1,000 or $2,000, when this new report out, a government report within our own federal government, this was given to Donald Trump last week, saying that this could last 18 months or longer, where people can't work, that the sickness will come in waves, that we are going to experience supply shortages. I mean, this is really serious stuff we're talking about here. And we can't sugarcoat this. Sugarcoating it is what got us to this crisis right now. Trump doing his BS happy talk on Fox News and holding his press conferences saying, oh, I got this under control and it's all good and there's only five cases and calling it the Chinese virus. Chinese people, people of Asian ancestry broadly, are being harassed on the streets because of Trump's rhetoric. And he's still using this racist rhetoric. And he was defending it in his press conference. But bottom line, we need to be looking, if we're going to put this country back together, or if we're just going to hold our finger in the dike, Trump should not be doing what Herbert Hoover did in 1929, 1930, and 1931, and 1932. 
The market collapsed in October of 29. The whole economy started to collapse in January, February, March of 1930. It slid down for all through 1930, all through 1931. By 1932, uh, early 1932, we were at 20% unemployment. By the end of 1932, early 1933, as Franklin Roosevelt was coming into office, we were at 35% unemployment. Why? Because the Republican Herbert Hoover said it's not the role of government to fix the economy. It's not the role of government to help out the people. The role of government should be limited to the army, the police, and the fire department. That was the Republican perspective then. That, by the way, is the Republicans' perspective right now. Congress needs to take this seriously. Rick in Mansfield, Ohio. Hey, Rick, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. What's up? Quick things. Are you aware of any way this is affecting the southern borders? And are they still bringing uh, immigrants in and putting in in these holding camps? Yeah, the kids in cages and the adults in cages are, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of them in in these private prisons that are very, very profitable. The prison companies are charging you and me, the taxpayers, up to $700 a day for these uh, jail cells that these people, mostly refugees, we're, we're no longer seeing people from Mexico coming to the United States looking for jobs. We haven't seen that in years. <laughs> the economy in Mexico has actually been doing fairly well, although the coronavirus is going to hit them too. But these detention centers, both for adults and children, are just, I mean, this is insane what's going on. And they're petri dishes just waiting for an explosion, for a meltdown. We've got to do something about that. McLean in Chino Valley, Arizona, watching on Free Speech TV. Hey, McLean, what's up? Yeah, Tom, I was wondering, perhaps you've, you've heard something that I've missed, but, you know, during this crisis, I've, I've heard the National Guard being called in by some states and mm-hmm. suggestions that the military should become fully involved. But where's FEMA? Isn't this their forte, supposedly? It is. And frankly, I don't even know who the director of FEMA is now. I bet it's some lobbyist, you know, that that Trump brought into the administration. But, you know, when he declared a national emergency, I believe it was Monday, maybe it was last Friday. Time is kind of blurring to me. What he did was he opened up a $40 billion FEMA fund. And FEMA, in theory, could be helping, could be collaborating, as the governor of New York keeps begging with, for example, the Army Corps of Engineers to do something. But I haven't seen any evidence that that's happening right now, McLean. They should be, though. Thank you for the call. Grady, in Medford, Oregon. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate you taking my phone call. You are a rare voice of unifying common sense in this time of national crisis. Man, like, uh, we've got to really do something together to get rid of Thank you. We have just 40 seconds, Grady. Quick one. Okay. Yeah, okay. My question, Tom, is I saw that Jack Mai, Alibaba founder, has donated a million face masks and half a million COVID test kits. And I saw a picture of them sitting on pallets on the dock in Long Beach. How can we get them out of that dock? And are they going to get out of the dock? And can we get them to where they need them? And I'll take my comment off the air. Thanks, Grady. I heard that Jack Ma was calling for something like this and was offering to do something. I didn't know if it was here in the United States or somewhere else. You know, he's a, a Chinese billionaire and a bit of a philanthropist. But I haven't seen the link that they were actually here in Long Beach. Where did you find that information, Grady? Uh, I was just in the nightly news, and it showed like them wrapped in red plastic sitting on the dock in Long Beach. They're here. Huh. Okay, so, so you saw it on TV. Interesting. I'll have to do some, uh, some searching on the Internet on that. Grady, let me find out what the details are, and I'll get back with you. Thank you for the call.
Our one-hour free podcast recaps our show, and it's available wherever fine podcasts are found. And we have the full three-hour podcast available over at TomHartman.com if you want to really support our program. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. Um, you know, I wanted to talk about living and loving and caring and being there for friends and family and each other during a time of shelter in place and great fear, frankly. I mean, this report, this federal report, which is very, very concerning, is suggesting that there could be as many as uh, 2 million dead Americans as a result of this coronavirus. That's more than all the people who died in the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the War of 1812, the World War I, World War II, the Vietnam War, and all the wars in the Middle East, uh, the Bush Wars, uh, Bush Elder and Bush Jr. You add all those wars together, and it's not two million dead Americans. So coronavirus could kill more people in this country than all our wars together. And this is there's one report out of the Imperial College of London that basically says this. There's another report that's coming out of the U.S. government itself that's saying basically the same thing. And this is, you know, very concerning. So what do we do? How do we avoid being one of those casualties? Well, the number one thing is to shelter in place. As San Francisco is mandating, and five or six counties in the Bay Area are now mandating, this is going to come to a community near you. And frankly, the sooner it does, the better. And if you can shelter in place, you should start doing it immediately. And that means, you know, finding ways to get food delivered, finding ways to get the necessities delivered, figuring out what your own necessities are. I mean, we, uh, this morning, Louise and I were like, uh, maybe we need to stop using uh, oat milk in our coffee because we're just about to run out. And so we're going to go to black coffee. We bought a whole, you know, pounds and pounds of coffee beans the other day. But, you know, I think beyond that, there is uh, how to deal with the loneliness of social isolation. Because shelter in place, what we're talking about is social isolation. And loneliness can be really destructive. I mean, it's actually, if you look at the studies, loneliness is as bad for your health as smoking. Loneliness will predict mortality more accurately than does obesity. These are serious problems. And Amanda Ripley wrote a great piece for the Washington Post about this, by the way, which is one of my sources of information on this that I commend to you. She said, it sounds like a trap, but it's more like a balancing act. And now is the time that we all need to be talking about what we can do to combat loneliness. And it's not just, you know, I know, you know, many people are going to be sheltering in place all alone. Many are going to be like Louise and I sheltering in place with their spouse. And... Loneliness can create this toxic chain reaction in our body. Fear causes stress hormones. So what are the antidotes? Well, Amanda Ripley suggests four things, and I endorse these. First, she says anyone who can exercise should do more of it now, every day. Physical exercise reduces stress. It boosts your immune functions. You know, and outdoor activities are great. Go for a walk. Just stay away from people. Louise and I have been, there's a, a trail, a path that runs along the Columbia River that we've been walking on for years. It's about a mile and a half walk. If we can, depending on where we enter the trail, we can make it a two mile walk or a one mile walk or a mile and a half walk. And we do that every day. And now we're finding that when we cross, when we meet people on the path who are going in the opposite direction, you know, they used to say hi and we'd walk right by each other. Now they're stepping off the trail so we can be six feet apart. And we're doing that too. But still, walking, getting out there, it boosts immune function. It helps things out. You can also, she says, my current gym is on the phone 
right? There's online yoga classes, there's exercise classes, you got this stuff all over YouTube. Second, social closening. It's actually coming closer to people, not physically, but using your phone, using your using Skype. She said, your phone is your lifeline. She, I've set a personal goal to talk, actually talk, not text, with one to two friends or family members by the telephone every day until this pandemic ends. And the coronavirus gives us an excuse to check in. The third is mindfulness, uh, basically meditation. Meditation reduces inflammation, enhances immune functions. Uh, there's evidence that prayer has the same effect. So meditation and prayer. And if you're not you know, real clear on how to do that, there's some great how-tos on the internet on how to do mindfulness meditation. You don't need to pay for anything. No, you don't need an app for it. Uh, there's, there's just no shortage of information. And uh, YouTube videos as well. You don't need to join a cult or anything weird like that. And fourth, do things for other people. Find things that you can do for other people. In Ireland, a woman, she writes, named Helen Rahali, has helped organize nearly 6,000 volunteers to help elderly and immune-compromised people get groceries almost entirely through Twitter. In Louisville, Aaron Hinson is matching volunteers with people in need using Google Docs. So... She says, this is the golden hour after disaster, a chance to come together and build resilience. She says, we have to seize the opportunity without fear. Viruses may be contagious, but fear can be contagious too. We will make it through this because I see at the end of this, everybody in America, even the people watching Fox News and listening to right-wing hate radio, are starting to realize that these systems that have been put in place you know, over the last 40 years with Reagan's adoption of uh, Reaganism and two Democratic presidents that were not able to repeal it. So we're still operating under Reaganism. We're still operating under neoliberal economics rather than the old Keynesian economics, which was Keynesian economics from 1932 to 1981, people-centered, worker-centered. Reaganomics, corporate-centered, billionaire-centered. And we're still there. And people are now starting to look around and go, what the hell? Seriously? You know, you want to bail out the airlines, but not the people who work for the airlines? I mean, you want to bail out the banks, but not the people the banks are trying to foreclose on? And this is what happened in 2008. The banks got bailed out, but how many homeowners got bailed out? Zero. Uh, you know, it's like our priorities are completely wrong. Here's an opportunity to fix them because now we've got this massive nationwide wake-up going on. So. You know, reach out to your friends, not physically, but reach out to friends and family. Give people virtual hugs. Talk to them on the phone. Listen a lot and be there for people. We can all do this. We can all get through this. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For our book club today, we're reading from David Blight's book, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. This is from the introduction. In his speech at the dedication of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., September 24, 2016, President Barack Obama delivered what he termed a, quote, clear-eyed view of a tragic and triumphant history of black Americans in the United States. He spoke of a history that is central to the larger American story, one that is both contradictory and extraordinary. He likened the African American experience to the infinite depths of Shakespeare and scripture, the, quote, embrace of truth as best we can know it, said the president, is, quote, where real patriotism lies. Naming some of the major pivots of the country's past, Obama wrapped up his central theme in a remarkable sentence about the Civil War era. Quote, we've buttoned up our Union blues to join the fight for our freedom. We've railed against injustice for decade upon decade, a lifetime of struggle and progress and enlightenment that we see etched in Frederick Douglass's mighty 
leonine gaze, end quote. How Americans react to Douglas's gaze, indeed how we gaze back at his visage, and more important, how we read him, appropriate him, or engage his legacies, informs how we use our past to determine who we are. Douglas's life and writing emerged from nearly the full scope of the 19th century, representative of the best and the worst in the American spirit. Douglas constantly probed the ironies of America's contradictions over slavery and race. Few Americans use Shakespeare and the Bible to comprehend his story and that of his people as much as Douglas. And there may be no better example of an American radical patriot than the slave who became a lyrical prophet of freedom, natural rights, and human equality. Obama channeled Douglas in his dedication speech, knowingly or not, so do many people today. Born Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey, a slave, in Talbot County, Maryland, in February 1818, the future Frederick Douglass was the son of Harriet Bailey, one of five daughters of Betsy Bailey, and with some likelihood his mother's white owner. He saw his mother for the last time in 1825, though he hardly knew her. She died the following year. Douglass lived 20 years as a slave and nearly nine years as a fugitive slave subject to recapture. From the 1840s to his death in 1895, he attained international fame as an abolitionist, editor, orator of almost unparalleled signature, and the author of three autobiographies that are classics of the genre. As a public man, he began his abolitionist career two decades before America would divide and fight a civil war over slavery that he openly welcomed. Douglas was born in a backwater of the slave society of the South, just as steamboats appeared in bays and on American rivers, and before the telegraph, the railroad, and the rotary press changed human mobility and consciousness. He died after the emergence of electric lights, the telephone, and the invention of the phonograph. The renewed orator and traveler loved and used most of these elements of modernity and technology. Douglas was the most photographed American of the 19th century, explained in this book and especially by the intrepid research of three other scholars I write upon. Although it can never really be measured, he may also have been, along with Mark Twain, the most widely traveled American public figure of his century. By the 1890s, in sheer miles and countless number of speeches, he had few rivals as a lecturer in the golden age of oratory. It is likely that more Americans heard Frederick Douglass speak than any other public figure of his time. Indeed, to see or hear Douglass became a kind of wonder of the American world. He struggled as well with the pleasures and perils of fame as much as anyone else in his century, with the possible exceptions of General Ulysses S. Grant or P.T. Barnum. Douglas's dilemma with fame was a matter of decades, not merely of moments, and fraught with racism. The orator and writer lived to see and interpret black emancipation, to work actively for women's rights long before they were achieved, to realize the civil rights triumphs and tragedies of Reconstruction, and to witness and contribute to America's economic and international expansion in the Gilded Age. He lived to the age of lynching and Jim Crow laws, when America collapsed into retreat from the real victories and revolutions in race relations that he had helped to win. He played a pivotal role in America's second founding out of the apocalypse of the Civil War, and he very much wished to see himself as a founder and defender of the Second American Republic. In one lifetime of anti-slavery, literary, and political activism, Douglas was many things, and the set of apparent paradoxes makes his story so attractive to, to biographers as well as to so many constituencies today. He was a radical thinker and a proponent of classic 19th century political liberalism. At different times, he hated and loved his country. He was a ferocious critic of the United States and all its hypocrisies, 
but also after emancipation, became a government bureaucrat, a diplomat, and a voice for territorial expansion. He strongly believed in self-reliance and demanded an activist interventionist government at all levels to free slaves, defeat the Confederacy, and to protect black citizens against terror and discrimination. Douglas was a serious constitutional thinker, and few Americans have ever analyzed race with more poignancy and nuance than this mostly self-taught genius with words. He was a radical editor, writer, and activist. The book, Frederick Douglass by David Blight. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. Before I pick up your phone calls, I just want to bring you up to date. Trump did a press conference this morning 
it's becoming really obvious to me that the problem that we have with this president is not like with Ronald Reagan, that he has an ideology, you know, that he's trying to turn America into a basically a right wing neoliberal country where the economy works for the billionaires and, and you know, blah, de blah. The problem is because Reagan actually knew what it meant to be president. He understood that he was governing. He was governing in a direction that, you know, in retrospect, now 40 years out, we can look back and see was disastrous for our country and continues to be because we're still in this Reaganism era. But he understood governing. He understood legislation. He understood the processes. He had been a governor. He knew what he was doing. Trump thinks being president means you're the host of the world's biggest reality show. Honest to God, I've come to this absolute belief that that's what he thinks. And, and so every day he jumps out there, he's, he's got to be at the top of the headlines every day, literally seven days a week, and he has been for three years. Always grab the news cycle. And this morning he hops out there and he's the host of the show. And his syncopants come up and they say a few things and then he comes, oh, hey, oh yeah, we got a hospital ship coming. Well, after the press conference, we discover the hospital ship is in maintenance. It's in dry dock. Oh, really? But here's a verbatim quote from this press conference. I got a 95% approval rating in the Republican Party, 53% overall. Not bad considering I get nothing but fake and corrupt news day and night. Russia, Russia, Russia. Then the Ukraine scam, where's that whistleblower? The impeachment hawk hoax and more, more, more. Also, according to the Daily Caller, I'm leading sleepy Joe Biden in Florida, 48 to 42%. That's what he said when he was supposed to be updating us on what he's doing about a condition that is literally killing Americans as we speak, is about to overwhelm our hospitals. And this is not speculation. This is a certainty. Many of our hospitals, probably most of our hospitals. And we have a game show host running our country. It's shocking. Anyhow, I see, uh, let's see here, Dave in Goodman, Wisconsin. Dave, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. It's been a while since I've talked to you. I'm 68 years old, just turned the last week, and I live alone. I just got laid off from a job that um, I was really enjoying. It's associated with a lot of people. I'm going to miss that, but I have been taking the same advice you just got done talking about. I practice yoga daily. I just took a two-mile walk in the woods this morning, and I'm trying to eat right, exercise, that sort of thing, and, and uh, I'm going to have to do that because this, you know, I know it's going to come to the point where I'm really going to miss people. But I am staying in touch with a lot of people, which is good, and I'm going to try to continue to do that. But anyway, the point I, when I talked to your screener, I wanted to make, I found out, listen to Amy Goodman, some of the stuff that's not being talked about, the Trump administration has decided to ramp up economic sanctions against Iran right now, you know, they've got a big major problem with this virus. We don't need to do that. And if anything, we should be helping them or at least backing off because this virus doesn't have borders. It's just ridiculous. Also, what he's doing, Dave, to the extent that he punishes Iran, that's the extent to which Iran is going to open their arms to China. Yeah, we're not making any friends. That's for sure. Yeah. No, it's a bad thing. Dave, thanks for the call. And yeah, developing 
positive daily habits and routines, you know, that are good and reaching out to people. Dave, thank you for the call. I, you know, I, I said to Louise this morning, you know, I, I'm going to try and hug you more, you know, <laughs> and, you know, because little things become big things when you're just confined together all the time. And uh, little things that are like annoyances can become anger. And on the other hand, little things that are just a little bit of affection can become, you know, a really positive, oh, yeah, okay, thank you. Mark in Costa Mesa, California. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. It's an honor to talk to you. Thank you. Back at you. I uh, called a friend of mine this weekend. He works at the Marriott next to Disneyland in California. And he told me that their uh, attendance of guests was uh, 2%. And there's uh, yeah. 1,030 rooms. That's 20 rooms. And he said that the bellmen were just one day a week. So Yeah, Marriott about, announced massive layoffs. Yeah. And that brings me over to Trump. It's one of a hundred reasons why he should not be president, especially right now, because his main concern, in my opinion, his number one concern is he's desperately trying to get bills passed that will help put taxpayer money into his hotels. Mm-hmm. And then also another opportunity he has is to get together with his, his rich friends that have the same situation he has that are also desperate in desperate times, how can he help them? And so right. this person is not a person for the people. He doesn't really, he doesn't act like he even cares about people. So this is all my opinion. This is me thinking. I'm not being paid by anybody to think otherwise. I can think and say what I think. Sure. What I, I believe it. is. So I really think that there should be some efforts on both sides of the fence to get this guy out of D.C., and take McConnell well, with him. I think you're seeing that. I mean, you know, Mitt Romney coming out and speaking out against him. He's the only Republican who was willing to. And then, you know, I believe it was on Friday saying we should give $1,000 to every American, which is huge for a Republican to say. But Mitt Romney at least has some humanity in him. I, you know, I may disagree with him on policy and politics. And, you know, I'm very glad that uh, Barack Obama beat him in the election. But all that said, he has some humanity, and Donald Trump is a sociopath, and that's a double danger for America. Mark, thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you. Damon in Las Vegas. I'm going to try to get this as uh, quick as I can. I've been doing day prepping for this for since January, and i got about seven months' worth of stuff here, which is nothing to oh be clear. But anyway, I'm in AA. I've been in recovery for about five years now. And my mentor and A sponsor is Trump is his daddy. You know, so I've been trying to talk to him and other people in A. And pretty much the A unit I am, I'm getting to my point, are Trump supporters. I've been trying to talk to them, and this goes back to what you're saying about Fox News, and they would listen to me. So yesterday he calls me, and he tells me his 27-year-old daughter, and who was a dental hygienist, and her husband, who is a uh, dentist, has COVID-19. And uh, two points I want to make. Number one, it's like they always say, no one cares about something to affect them. And you think that these Trump supporters are going to fall away until it affects them? I saw it for the last two months. They don't care. Trump is their daddy. And number two, well, this is a Caucasian family. His daughter, I've seen a couple of times, is a Barbie doll. She's a dental hygienist, college educator. Her husband is a doctor. They have every advantage in the world. And uh, COVID-19 didn't care about their race, how much money they have. You know, you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and you said it well, Damon. Damon, thank you for the call, and thanks for watching us on YouTube. Bobby in Yonkers, New York. Hey, Bobby, what's up? 
Yeah, I'm a uh, I'm a union technician employed by Verizon in, in Westchester County, and uh, part of our area is New Rochelle, which you know people know is is kind of a hot spot. Right. It's a hot spot for infection, and people have been you know in their homes. And most of my guys that I work with do residential installs. So what they do is you know you go from house to house, and you're you know we do phone, internet, and video. Right. With the, they call it FIOS. I, I get and, it, Bobby. Uh, I need you to get to the point because we've got 30 okay. seconds until we hit a the break. The point is, there's no protocols for my guys when they're out in the field. They have no. So, uh, so your utility company is not telling people what to do or anything. Well, they're That's asking terrible. people. They're they're asking for volunteers for New Rochelle, but uh, I don't yeah. think anyone's taking it. But you know, it, it doesn't stop at New Rochelle. You know, Westchester right. County is a very uh, populated area. Yeah. So, so people I don't should know be at the, the, you know, at the very least they should be wearing gloves and and they should get masks. You know, it's, they're not getting anything. I mean, and, and listen, I was yeah, an I mean, industrial hygienist. Can, you need training for respirators and things like that, but they're not even getting hand yeah. washing stuff. Oh man, that's see, this is and without any federal leadership or guidance, communities just don't know what to do. This is this is such a tragedy, Bobby. I'm so sorry to hear that. I, I wish you well. I, you know. We, and I'll need to say a prayer for those people who are out there doing that kind of work. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Francis in Seattle. Hey, Francis, what's on your mind today? Really quickly, I just want to thank you for walking your blues away and for ADHD, A Different Perspective. I oh, you're in, welcome. Um, I worked in medical for 30 years, and I used those books so much. Gave away copies. Anyway, I think um, they're two of the most important books I've written, along with uh, Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. You know, the, they're well, and your books on stuff. the government help me understand why our system goes sideways so often. So those were great, yeah. too. But I didn't use them at so work. what's up, Francis? What's up is that, you know, I was uh, in healthcare when the AIDS epidemic started. And mm-hmm. at first, they were saying that men couldn't get it from sex with a woman. And I ha- was living in a house with about eight other people because I was way in debt because of my training. I had these two male housemates who both had possibly been exposed to AIDS, but were just having sex with as many women as they could and not informing the women. And, you know, I talked mm-hmm. to them about it and they said, well, it's their problem. You know, it's not my problem. So the day that wow. the morbidity and mortality weekly came out because it wasn't the Internet then. So that was like the latest news. It came out once a week. The day it came out and said that somebody had documented a female-to-male transmission, I photocopied it, a couple of copies, took it home, and pinned it on their door. And yeah. they both turned green when they read it. But the yeah. thing about infectious disease is that human beings, because of, we have these cognitive misperceptions that make us underestimate risk. So people will try to keep things the same. And you just, we're not very good at being in the state of not knowing and being cautious. Yeah, and we underestimate some kinds of risk um, and we overestimate other kinds of risk. Those those things are, I've seen a lot of stuff on TV about how we overestimate risk, but I think your point that we underestimate, we're seeing that right now, particularly with people who watch Fox News, listen to right-wing hate radio, and people who think that because they're under 30, they're not going to get sick or they're not going to die. And uh, they're, they're absolutely wrong. And it's just, right. it's just a tragedy. Francis, thank you. Thanks for sharing your story. It was a good one. Ron in Sophia, North Carolina. Hey, Ron, what's up? Hey, Tom. How are you doing? 
I'm well. What's on your mind? Uh, I wanted to respond to your uh, stimulus talk you was talking about a while ago. Mm-hmm. I was watching the Don Lemon show, and he had Scaramucci and Andrew Yang on there. And mm-hmm. he was talking about the trillion-dollar stimulus. And Scaramucci said that Trump needed to add $3 million to that and made it a $4 million total, a $4 trillion. Trillion total yeah. uh, injection immediately to help the small business and the people, not the you know, mm-hmm. big corporations, the, the big companies. And I, I totally agree. 100% agree with him. What do you yeah, think? Too. I, you know, what I proposed you know, on our, our daily post, which is over at uh, buzzfeed.com and our Facebook page, is that the Congress should be looking at 15 to $20 trillion spaced out over the next 12 to 18 months because that's what it's going to take. We are in for a hell of a ride here. It's going to last a year and a half, according to both the studies out of the UK and the studies done by, our, by, the, by the Trump administration itself. And uh, during that 18 months, we need uh, average people in America to have a, a net under them. We need something to hold everybody up. And, and that means you know, strengthening Social Security. It means you know, a long-term unemployment. It means direct cash payments to literally every man, woman, and child in America. And this is not to stimulate the economy. That's not going to happen. The economy is going to be in recession for a long time, at least throughout this entire period, because people are going to have a hard time buying things other than you know, by delivery. But what it will do is it'll prevent people from losing their homes. It'll prevent them from, from uh, you know, uh, going into bankruptcy. It'll prevent them from, from uh, well, losing their homes, I guess, is the biggest thing, or losing their cars and things like that. I mean, we need, to, we need to put a moratorium on debt, and we need to be giving people cash. Ron, thank you for the call. Russ in Portland. Hey, Russ, what's up? Uh, Tom, hi. I, uh, I was in the presence of a doctor yesterday, routine visit. I judge this doctor to be exceptionally bright, and because I'm the son of a physician and the nephew of a physician and the son of a nurse, I think I'm in a little bit better position to judge these things than the average layperson. This doctor told me that the coronavirus is way more transmissible than what the American people are being told by the government and the mainstream media. They're putting out this idea that if somebody coughs or sneezes, if they're six feet away from you, the droplets go to the floor, everything's cool. No. You can walk into a Trader Joe's two hours after somebody sneezed or coughed you can get it. <laughs> we are in for a really bad situation in this country yeah. based on the information. Well, and it's not just the, the biggest problem, Russ, is that with the common cold and the flu, you might get infected on Monday and on Saturday you start showing symptoms, which means that on Friday you were contagious. You know, you're contagious typically a day before you get symptoms with the common cold and the flu. With this coronavirus, you are contagious the day after you're infected, which can be as much as 14 to 20 days before you start showing symptoms. All that time you're infecting other people. That's why it's so radically transmissible. Yeah. Russ, I got to run, but thank you for the call. I mean, this is, this is the problem, and this needs to be repeated over and over and over again. And I don't think this administration is doing a good enough job of telling people what the science is telling us. We'll be right back. The Tom Hartman University Book Club. We're reading from Walking Your Blues Away, How to Heal the Mind and Create Emotional Well-Being from Chapter 1, How Trauma Sticks and the Mechanism of PTSD. 
One of the enduring mysteries in the field of psychology is why the same event produces such different memories and responses in different people. Citing a report in the New England Journal of Medicine, the writer noted the researchers surveyed more than 6,000 soldiers in the month before and after service in Iraq and Afghanistan. Almost 17% of those who fought in Iraq reported symptoms of major depression, severe anxiety, or post-traumatic stress disorder, compared with 11% of the troops who served in Afghanistan. In World War II, post-war depression and anxiety was called battle fatigue. In World War I, we called it shell shock. The question isn't so much why it happens. We know GIs in war do and see horrific things. The question that perplexes us is why post-war anxiety and depression haunts some veterans and not others. Of course, some vets see harder combat than others, but even that doesn't account for the statistics. There are still huge variations among individual soldiers in how they respond to the same event. The same is true in the civilian world. Some people develop PTSD and others don't, facing the exact same circumstances. In order to understand why some people are still shocked months and even years after a traumatic event, it's necessary to first understand how the brain and mind processes trauma. The brain is a complex collection of deeply interconnected parts and processes. I'm vastly oversimplifying here for the purpose of description. And in light of those caveats, here's a possible scenario that's not inconsistent with much of what's known about brain function. There's a part of the limbic brain, or visceral brain, called the hippocampus that's believed to function as a one-day scratch pad for memory. Everything you experience throughout the day is stored in the hippocampus. In order for the impressions of the experience to become a long-term memory, they must pass through the hippocampus into the rest of the brain. People with a damaged hippocampus remember past events but have extreme difficulty learning new things. Although the rest of the brain is able to integrate recent information from the hippocampus in relation to stored memories, in order to understand that one thing happened a week ago and another thing happened a month ago, the hippocampus knows only one time, today. During the night as we sleep, the hippocampus dumps its information from the day into the rest of the brain for processing, sorting, storing, and disposing of irrelevant information. As the brain is processing the details of the day from the hippocampus, we experience what we call dreaming. Many sleep researchers are convinced that when we experience REM sleep, most of the events, including the traumas of our daily life, are processed. The processing of information management completed when we wake up in the morning, the hippocampus is once again empty and ready to record another day. The problem emerges when the hippocampus is carrying information that's too much or too hot for the larger brain mind to handle. When a recent memory is too strong to be easily and unremarkably processed, it presents in our dream world as a nightmare. If that still doesn't download the information from the hippocampus, then the trauma either becomes buried in the subconscious, a process Freud referred to as repression, or it gets thrown back into the hippocampus the next morning. It's as if the brain says, whoa, that's too much for me to process in one evening. Please hang on to it for another day. When the person wakes up in the morning, the information's still there in the hippocampus, still remembered and known and felt as if it happened that same very day. The conjecture that the hippocampus knows little about the more distant past accounts for the unique feature of true PTSD that the person feels every day as if the past event happened today, or at least in the very recent past. The trauma is always front, center, new, fresh, and raw. The consequences can be psychologically and emotionally devastating. Every day is affected by a past event. The traumatic event never passes from now until then and is never processed and filed away in the memory banks where it loses the power to cause pain and problems on a daily basis. The impact of this on the mind and the emotions is staggering. Brain scans even demonstrate that before a PTSD event has been processed, the amygdala, a part of the brain responsible for strong emotional states such as those involved with survival or the perception of a threat to survival, and the hippocampus are not functioning normally. 
the brain scan makes it possible to, in a way, see the effect of the stuck memory. After processing the memory, these parts of the brain usually return to normal functioning. One of the key concepts of many schools of psychology is that human beings are most functional when every part of the mind has access to all other parts. In particular, this functionality is a matter of having full access to positive resources, such as memories of times when we were successful in our undertakings and the good feelings we associate with those accomplishments. Working from this level of functionality, then, when we take on a new task, for example, we first remember times in the past when we attempted something similar and accomplished our goals. This functionality can be accessed in all endeavors, from embarking on a new love relationship to making your first public speaking engagement. Memories of past accomplishments and capabilities are stored in parts of the brain far from the amygdala and the hippocampus. The amygdala and hippocampus, part of our brain's most primary and primitive structures, lie deep in the brain. Thus, having a negative memory stuck deep in the hippocampus blocks the pain and fear associated with that memory from reaching and associating with positive memories and resource states, which are housed in more distant parts of the brain. So, in other words, if we don't get these traumatic memories out of the hippocampus, then everything coming in gets filtered through that and blocked having access to resource states that can help and heal us. So the rest of the book is how to get that stuff out of the hippocampus. The book is Walking Your Blues Away. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Things are getting pretty strange here in the United States. Forget about Donald Trump and Mike Pence, right? That's just a sideshow. Donald Trump thinks that his job as president of the United States is to be reality TV show, game show host in chief. And he'll gather a few people around him as props and let them come out and say a few words, but he's going to be the star of the show. No more Mike Pence and weirdly, no more CDC. The director of the CDC, Robert Redfield and Ann Shousat, S-C-H-U-C-H-A-T, I think it's Shoshat, Principal Deputy Director, who have been behind that presidential podium all the way back to the mid-2000s, including the 2009 influenza pandemic, they're no longer showing up. This has just turned into a PR operation. So forget about Donald Trump and Mike Pence. Andrew Cuomo is now the acting president of the United States. Trump continues to think that, you know, his job is reality show moderator-in-chief. Cuomo, on the other hand, the governor of New York State and a former member, he was the HUD secretary for Bill Clinton back in the 90s. He was a member of Bill Clinton's cabinet. He's been in the Situation Room. He's been in these cabinet room meetings. Has been doing a morning update every day this week with facts, figures, and reassuring stories about his own family. He had his daughter on next to him today. Six feet away, but his daughter was on next to him. He's been showing us what humanity, decency, and competency look like. CNN, MSNBC, and even Fox News are carrying Cuomo's morning updates live 
nationwide. Finally, Fox News has decided, well, maybe, you know, maybe there's something to this stuff. Now that America has figured out that not only has Trump been lying to them for years, to us for years, but the Republican Party and their trickle-down economics thing has been a scam for the last 40 years. The, the country is basically turning its back on Trump. He goes on TV and talks and the stock market goes down. America now gets it. In Brazil, the people are demanding that right-wing President Jair Bolsonaro step down because he did the same thing Trump has done in failing to prepare for a crisis that was obviously coming and then lying to his people about it for months. And soon we'll see demands that Trump step down and let somebody who actually knows how to run a government replace him, and it can't come fast enough. And if you want to see that little rant that I just shared with you, it's over at buzzflash.com and on our Facebook page. But, you know, just to, to elaborate, people, people are stamp- in, in, in uh, Brazil, they're sheltered in place, right? You can't go out. Uh, well, you can. It's, it's voluntary confinement. But what's happening is millions of people in Sao Paulo, the capital, and Rio de Janeiro, the largest city, uh, took to their balconies and windows to demand Bolsonaro's ouster over his handling of the COVID-19 outbreak. The massive protest kicked off mid-afternoon yesterday as Bolsonaro was on TV. Bolsonaro, who just last week said that the whole thing was a fantasy. This virus epidemic, it's a fantasy. Right. Another story here about the CDC has been sidelined and they're no longer doing briefings to the public. They're doing briefings to public health authorities, but not to the public. Robert Redfield and Anne Shushat, the comment that was made, this was uh, to the Washington Post, quote, ever since Mike Pence's team took over the response, they have treated the outbreak as a public relations crisis. Well, that's what it is. There's no way these guys stay in office. Meanwhile, NPR this morning was playing a recording from three friggin' weeks ago of North Carolina Republican Senator Richard Burr telling an audience, it was a business group, these are presumably wealthy donors, that this thing is going to get really bad really fast. It was described by NPR as a dire warning about the coronavirus. Three weeks ago, this was at a luncheon in Washington, D.C., of a group of businessmen and women, presumably, from North Carolina called the Tar Heel Circle. Now, Burr was not saying the same thing to his constituents. He wasn't saying the same thing to you and me and and the people of North Carolina. Meanwhile, Trump tweeted out, I only signed the Defense Production Act to combat the Chinese virus should we need to invoke it in a worst-case scenario in the future. Hopefully there will be no need, but we are all in this together. In other words, First of all, Democrats in Congress have been saying, Trump, invoke the Defense Production Act so that the federal government can say to individual factories, you will make ventilators and we will make you whole if you lose money doing it. So just go ahead and do it and don't worry. You know, uh, man the torpedoes and whatever the phrase is, right? But now Trump is saying, yeah, you know, I signed that, but I'm not going to actually do it. And Elizabeth Warren is saying, President Trump, are your eyes stitched shut? Hospitals need test kits, ventilators, and other medical supplies. That's why the Defense 
Production Act exists. Stop dragging your feet and burying your head and start helping hospitals that are about to be slammed by this pandemic. That was yesterday. This morning on CNN, just before President Andrew Cuomo addressed the nation on all three cable networks, and I don't know if he was on NBC, ABC, or CBS. I, I, I doubt it, but who knows? But just before that, on CNN, Poppy Harlow was interviewing people. Mass General uh, Hospital has run out of masks. They've basically wiped out their supply of personal protective gear. This has reached the levels of, you know, what would you call it? A genuine crisis. How about that? Yes, that is where it's at right now. And Trump is going on TV blithering and talking about what a wonderful job he's doing and all his people and this, that, and the other thing. And it's just, it's just amazing. Merrick in West Hills, California. Hey, Merrick, what's on your mind today? I wonder if anybody is aware of the fact that in October of 2019, there was a tabletop mock pandemic at Johns Hopkins University that was labeled the coronavirus uh, uh, mock pandemic. And there they uh, uh, had all kind of predictions. But if we had that kind of foreknowledge that this was occurring and our government took place, Big Pharma, government, who, NIH, all took place in this tabletop mock pandemic. If we had that much foreknotice that there was an impending pandemic, we should have been way prepared. And the fact that we are not using WHO test kits is a travesty. It shows that we are under the thumb of disaster capitalism, where corporations and big pharma are trying to gain, trying to profit. Gain profits. So, That's what they're trying to do, Merrick. Yeah, spot on. And here's the thing. We shouldn't, and Merrick, thank you. Your point is really well made, and it's an important one. And let me take it to the next step. I'm not familiar with this particular tabletop thing, but that they would do it with a coronavirus, you know, that whole family of viruses. That's where SARS is. That's where MERS is, the camel virus. It's got a 40% fatality rate that's in the Middle East right now. SARS is the one that we stopped back in, I think it was 2009. It might have been earlier than that. Maybe it was 2003. The one that came out of, again, bats out of, out of uh, Asia. And um, by the way, Trump keeps saying this is a Chinese virus. It came from China. No, it came from bats, you idiot. Um, they just happened to be in China. But in any case, after those two coronavirus crises, particularly after the second one, and the H1N1 flu possibility that we were going to have a flu pandemic, this was in 2009 when President Obama was president, his first year. We were looking at flu pandemic that might kill millions, just like it did back in 1919. And Obama put together two pandemic response teams, one that would have to do with national security. How, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with foreign countries? How do, you know, what are all the political and logistical things? And that was over in the National Security Council. And the second one that would coordinate the activities of our health agencies, that would coordinate activities of our police agencies who may have to enforce things like quarantines and that would work with hospitals and research agencies and bring in the CDC. That one was over in the Department of Homeland Security. We had these two teams in place. Obama put them in place in 2009. Donald Trump gets elected in 2016. He gets sworn in in 2017. A year later in 20, well, actually it was later in 2017. That year, on the advice from one of these right-wing think tanks funded by right-wing billionaires, Donald Trump disbanded both of those agencies and fired all their staffers. 
Now, what those agencies did on an ongoing basis with their government paychecks that the the right-wing billionaires thought was a waste of their tax dollars, what these agencies did with this was they did just exactly what you just described. They would strategize, they would plan, they would have regular exercises out in the field. There was also, and Richard Trumka pointed this out, and this was insane. Richard Trumka pointed this out yesterday on CNN. Uh, you know, the, 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 the president of the AFL-CIO. That the Occupational Safety and Health Administration had guidelines that were put into place by the Obama administration in the last year of the Obama administration that were supposed to take effect in 2017, the first year of the Trump administration, that said that every hospital in America had to have enough masks and personal protective gear to deal with a real crisis. And that employers, this is limited to large employers, but large employers across the United States similarly had to have pandemic planning in place and equipment for pandemics, including masks and respirators and gloves, in place. And Trump did away with these regulations, which had not yet been implemented. He was supposed to put them into place. He did away with them because he said it will cost industry and the for-profit hospital industry too much money. That's what Richard Trump has said yesterday on CNN. We're trying to get him on the program to give us more on the details. You say, gee, you know, uh, Johns Hopkins was doing tabletop planning on coronavirus in October of last year. Well, they were doing it because the federal government, who really should be doing it, you know, a university can't deal with a nationwide pandemic. It's something that, is, that literally requires the federal government. Andrew Cuomo made this point this morning on Fox, CNN, and, and MSNBC. Our new president of the United States, acting president of the United States, Andrew Cuomo, Governor Cuomo, he made this point this morning. He said, I used to be in Bill Clinton's cabinet. I know what, and I'm the governor of one of the largest states in the country. He said, I know what a governor can do, and I know what the federal government can do. And there are some things that he said, I can quarantine 10,000 people. Actually, he was making it, his daughter was sitting next to him. He was talking about how your kids don't always take your advice. He said, I can quarantine 10,000 people, but, you know, I, I can't necessarily quarantine my daughter. Um, but, or words to that effect. But he said, you know, I know that there are some things that I can't do as a governor. Only the federal government can do them. I can't commandeer the Army Corps of Engineers to build a hospital facility next door to a hospital. I can't use, you know, know, he went through some of these, these powers. And tragically, the Washington Post had a piece day before yesterday about how inside the Trump administration, you've got these two teams, the Pence team and the Jared Kushner team. The Jared Kushner team, Jared's brother owns this big health insurance company, which is heavily invested in by the Google company that Trump was talking about from the White House a couple of days ago. So Kushner's looking for ways to make money on this. And his brother-in-law is asking for advice on Facebook that, that is channeled now into the White House. And Mike Pence is dealing with it like a PR problem. But nobody's actually dealing with it like a government problem. Trump comes out and says the right words. Oh, it's a whole government response. B.S. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, 
They'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.